I'm good, yeah. Got that? All right. Now I can yell at you louder. All right, Luke chapter 9. Now, Luke chapter 9 as a whole, I think, illustrates the many facets of the coming of the kingdom of God. And so we see Christ continuing the covenant by sending out his representatives. At the beginning of the chapter, he sends out his disciples. He empowers them to do amazing and profound things, things things that they did not expect. And so they go out to the world and they cast out demons. They're healing the sick. Um, They also, uh, we see the feeding of the multitudes. Jesus sits down at least 5,000 people. And, and, and miraculously, there's enough food, there's enough for all. Uh, we see the strange and mysterious story of the transfiguration. Uh, Jesus is shining with glory on this mountain. He invites some of his disciples up there with him. And, and he's talking to Moses and Elijah about his departure. Or, or the Greek word for that is exodus. And so we see all these, these mysterious and fantastic things happening in the transfiguration. And then this voice from heaven proclaims that Christ, this is my son whom I love. Listen to what he says. And so uh, then again, uh, we have another story uh, at the end of this chapter where, where a couple of the disciples are, are trying to minister. They're trying to tell people about uh, the coming of the kingdom in Christ. And they go through a Samaritan village Now, one of the things that's very important for us to recognize about the first century, about the text that we are reading, is that racial elements were profound. They were deep-seated. And so the Samaritans, if you've heard the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan, the reason that is so shocking is because the Samaritan is is the enemy of the Jewish people. And so Jesus tells this story where the hero should have been the, 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 the least likely person imaginable. And so a couple of these disciples are walking through a Samaritan village, and they endure some opposition. And, and their response is not, yes, go in peace, God loves you. They ask Jesus, Jesus, hey, um, we, these guys have been messing with us. They're Samaritans, so clearly God hates them. Um, should we call down fire from heaven and just, just wipe them out? Because these two guys had read the story that Craig talked about last week, Elijah on the mountain. They're thinking, like, we get to, we get, if the kingdom of God is here, we get to act that out. Then God's going to send fire from heaven, and he's going to wipe them out, because clearly God is going to deal with his enemies. And Jesus, it says that Jesus rebukes them strongly. He says, no, that's not what the kingdom of God looks like. In the kingdom of God, you don't wipe out your enemies, you love your enemies. And so there's a lot of different facets to this chapter that point to the realities of the coming of the kingdom of God. We're going to look at a a, a section of scripture in the middle of this passage. It's a a famous section. It's a section that you will, uh, if you've been in church for some time, you will be familiar with. So Luke chapter 9. At the heart of this chapter are two scenes that illustrate distinctions for Jesus. That that demand exploration, I think, today. These distinctions, they create paradigms uh, that vividly illustrate what Christ lived and died for. At the conclusion of these two scenes, uh, I would suggest, as, as far as Luke's concerned, have to be taken together. You know, sometimes the thing that, that, that doesn't really help us as much as we think it does are those little headings that you have in your, in your Bible. Sometimes we've got to put those things together. And so we're going to do that here today. And my hope today is that we can begin by seeing Jesus for who he is, by beholding him, beautiful and true. Because, because after we've seen him, after we have been able to have God revealed to us by the fullness of Christ, uh, then he's going to take another step. He's going to challenge us. He's going he's to demand a response from us. So let's pray that God can speak here this morning. 
Holy Spirit, we ask that we would be humbled here this morning. God, that your grace would be so vivid, so apparent. Lord, as the fullness of your love, the fullness of your truth is revealed in your Son, Jesus. God, may we see him today. May we worship him. May we bow our hearts before him. It's your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's start in verse 18. It says, Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, God's Messiah. Now this is a well-known passage. Uh, If you guys grew up in Catholic Church, this is where a a lot of Catholic scholars feel that Peter received his commission to be the first pope. This is where, um, on this rock, as Matthew says in his account of of this interaction... On this rock, I will build my church. This is where that idea comes from. Now, we often pay close attention to the nature of Peter's response. We're all so happy for Peter, right? Like Peter finally got one right. Now, this leads me to a wider discussion. I think, I think there's a lot of pastors who better hope it's not Peter doing the uh, paradise check-in. Because I think Peter's going to issue a beatdown. He's like, because all we have of Peter is, is these kind of... Uh, rambunctious responses, if you will. Uh, We have John, who seems to have an agenda against Peter, talking about how slow he runs. I mean, poor Peter. He's the only one who walked on water, right? Nobody gets reminded of that. But but Peter gets treated like the simpleton. But if you read 1 and 2 Peter, this dude was a warrior. And I think Peter's going to be waiting for a lot of pastors, you know, like, oh, you made, you you thought it'd be fun to make fun of me, huh? All right, well, your name's on the list, but me and you, we've got to have a little conversation first. Peter's going to issue the, you know, the heavenly check-in beatdown before he lets people in. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but just something to think about. <laughs> now, Peter, uh, Peter says, you are the Messiah, God's Messiah. Now, this, this term is not uh, devoid of meaning. It, it is so full of meaning that we have to look at what he's saying. This word Messiah comes from the Greek Christos. It, it means anointed one. And, and it was a very, very important term for the people of Jesus' day. Peter meant, meant something very profound and very deep when he said this. And so we have to ask the question, what, what was he to accomplish, this Messiah? Now, uh, many, many of us have a, have a real basic understanding of the concept of Messiah, and I think it's a, it's a correct one. Uh, we have seen the disconnect between uh, the people's understanding of the Messiah. We've seen that the disciples, they come to Jesus and they ask, can we sit at your left and your right hand when you come in your kingdom? And Jesus' response to them is, is, is those seats are not for me to give. Uh, and, and what we see is, is at the moment when Jesus is coming in his kingdom, at the moment where he is being victorious over the powers that, 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 that uh, uh, oppress the Jewish people, he's actually being crucified. And who's at his left and his right? A couple of uh, thieves being executed for their crimes. And so the, the, the disconnect happens uh, with, with the people's expectation of what the Messiah was. They thought the Messiah was a, a very specific thing um, that, that fit into a couple of different categories. So um, the first thing I, I want to make clear, though, is when Peter says that you are God's Messiah, it did not necessarily mean that there was this checklist. Um, sometimes, especially when we read Matthew's Gospel, and it says, and, and these things were done to fulfill the Scriptures, we almost see Jesus as, as having this list of things that he has to do. He's like, oh, okay, well, I'll fulfill that scripture, that one, that one. This is not what's happening. 
Jesus is reorienting this whole paradigm of what it means to be the Messiah. So what did Peter mean? What did it mean to him when he said, you are God's Messiah? Um, historically, within a couple of hundred years of, of Jesus' time, there were, there were numerous would-be messiahs that would, have fit into, um, that, that would not have necessarily fit into any predetermined category. So, if, if there was no agreed-upon template amongst the people of Jesus' day concerning what the Messiah looked like, then how, how can we have any idea what Peter was really saying? Well, the same way that we know that there's no one-size-fits-all definition for the Messiah, we can, we can glean a couple of overarching themes. Now, I, I think we do this with Jesus a lot. We take him, we, we, we almost treat him as this disembodied figure who could have come into the world at any time, at any place in history, because he was merely teaching timeless truths, right? We think that people were so confused by what he was saying because he was just talking about things that they had no... They were like, what, what is this guy even talking about? We, we picture Jesus like dropping these truth bombs and then walking away while the people are scratching their heads. But the reason that people were so kind of head-scratching when it came to Jesus is because what he was saying was so familiar. But the way that he was saying it, the things that he was pointing to, were, were so uh, beyond their expectations. They, they were shifting the paradigm of what the people would have expected. So, let's look at the situation uh, that the people was, uh, that Jesus was speaking to would have lived in every day. Now, I, I hope this goes without saying, but we're going to look at the overall mindset of, of a group of people that lived uh, a couple thousand years ago. Uh, we are going to oversimplify a lot of things, but I, they're, they're going to help us kind of get to where we're going today. Um, okay, so the people of Israel knew... They knew that they were in exile. This was evidenced most obviously by the presence of their oppressors, the Romans. Now, the Romans behaved exactly as you would expect pagan oppressors to behave. They taxed the people to support their empire. They violently suppressed any threats. They lived life with a broken moral compass because they worshipped false gods. The Jewish people had a genuine sentiment that though the, the Romans were the instrument of their exile. They were, the, they were the ones who were enforcing it, that they were not the, the primary reason for their exile. See, the primary reason was the sin of the people of Israel itself. And, and they had this understanding. This is why we have to ask ourselves, like, what would lead Paul to be so zealous against the Christians that he would be going after them and killing them? It's because he sees the, the, the Christians as, as people who are blaspheming the name of God that they are contributing to the sin of, of the people of Israel and therefore keeping them in exile. This is, why, uh, this is one of the reasons that Paul would have been so adamant about doing those things in Acts. Now, uh, when Peter says that you are God's Messiah, he's expecting the Messiah to deal with three things. And these are good things to write down. Uh, the first thing is, is the Messiah will lead the real return from exile. Now, the people had returned to the land. If you read your Old Testament, you understand that, that there were different points where, where the people of Israel were literally carried out of their homeland. Now, they're living in their homeland now. Uh, a lot of the action in the Gospels takes place in Jerusalem. There has been a return of sorts. But the fact that the Romans are still there seems to demonstrate that God has not fully uh, led the people out of exile. And so the first thing that they would have expected about the Messiah is that he will lead the real return from exile. The second thing is the defeat of evil. Now this is where we have to put ourselves in the mindset of the first century. For the Jewish people, 
Evil was not some sort of unseen force. Evil was not uh, sin and death, as Jesus would treat it as. Evil was the pagans. The people who oppressed them. The, the Romans would crucify hundreds of Jewish people just to demonstrate the fact that you should not try to o- overthrow what we're doing here. That if you mess with Rome, you get a cross and you lose. And so the second thing that they would have expected is that God would act on their behalf, that he would judge fairly and he would find in favor of Israel against, over against the pagan oppressors. Now, the third thing that they would have expected of the Messiah is the return of Yahweh, Israel's God, to Zion. That, that in Ezekiel 10, God's glory had departed the temple, that he had left them, that, that they were on their own. And, and it was evidenced by the fact that in the temple, God no longer dwelt there. And so they would have expected that some way, somehow, that, that the Messiah, as Peter calls Jesus, was going to bring God's presence back amongst the people. Now, this caused the temple to become a central symbol for the Messiah. Um, if you know the story of Hanukkah, uh, Judas Maccabeus uh, overgoes, uh, or under, overthrows excuse me, the, the, the government of Antiochus Epiphanes. He, he reinstates worship in the temple after pagans had been sacrificing pigs there. They had been worshiping Zeus there. And this guy, Judas, comes in and he, uh, he throws them out and reinstates worship in the temple. And so this would have been a very Messiah-like thing to do. And some people even saw him as such. So the Messiah was going to lead the real return from exile. He was going to lead the overthrow of evil and return Yahweh to the temple. Now, when, when these things happened, the people had this expectation that they would be a part of the fight. This is why when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, they welcome him. They're ready. They're like, dude, if you're taking on the Romans, we're coming with you. Peter draws a sword. And Jesus says, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. The Messiah was seen as the one who would in some form cleanse the people of their sin and he would lead them in battle just as David had defeated Goliath, just as Judas Maccabeus had, had fought the, the pagans who, who oppressed the people. Uh, Israel has this history with their kings, this history of, of their kings leading them in battle, of leading the fight against their enemies. Peter would have expected somebody like David to come and there's a reason for that. There's a text in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is by no means the whole expectation of the Messiah, but it's something that Peter would have had in mind. I'm just going to read a little bit of this to you. Beginning in verse 11, it says, The Lord declares to you, he's talking to David, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This is God's promise to the the kingdom of David. This is why in Matthew, the the gospel writer makes such a point to to demonstrate that Jesus is in the line of David. That Jesus is the king who's coming like David to do the things that the Messiah was supposed to do. 
So, in some ways, Peter was absolutely right to, to, to declare that Jesus is God's Messiah. But what we see from history, what we see from reading the rest of the text, is maybe Peter didn't even grasp the full, uh, the, the full profound nature of what he was saying. And look at what Jesus says to them in uh, Luke 9, 21. Jesus says, be careful. Be careful that you don't tell anyone. Now, th- there's a real political reason for this. If Jesus is God's Messiah, if he's the real king, then there's a lot of real kings in the world who are going to undergo a demotion at Jesus' appearance. And so Jesus is like, hey, just, just keep that quiet for a minute. And we're going to explore that just uh, a little bit more. He's going to go on. And this is where we usually stop. This is where we usually disconnect the narrative. But Jesus has some uh, important things that he's going to connect here. If you look in verse 22, and he said, the Son of Man, you know, I don't know if you've ever asked yourself this, but why did Jesus go around addressing himself in the third person? Like, isn't it a little annoying? Like, don't we make fun of people for doing that? Like, if Ian were to sit here and say, Ian likes coffee, Ian likes enchiladas, like, you guys are thinking in your head, Ian wants to get punched in the face. Or Ian's a little weird, right? Uh, A couple of us were at the Eagles game when they retired Donovan McNabb's jersey, and he says, number five will always love you. that dude's weird. And, well, and, and speaking, of, speaking of people that need a Messiah, like, it's almost like, if you want to think about it in football terms, the Messiah would be like the Eagles quarterback who can finally lead them to winning the Super Bowl. And so, therefore, hey, look, look, look. So Donovan McNabb would have been a false Messiah. Um, now, it's a little weird when people talk about themselves in the third person. Now, did people just give Jesus the benefit of the doubt? Oh, that's just what he does. Like, that's just Jesus doing Jesus things. Or, maybe there was a reason that he would address himself in that way. Did he just think son of man sounded really regal? Like, he's like, oh, I kind of like the sound of that son of man. Or, perhaps he was saying something a little more profound. Now, um, Matt, you can put that picture up there. Now, imagine that 2,000 years from now, people saw this. They might wonder some things, like, could, could donkeys and elephants, like, wear boxing gloves? Um, why, why, why are the donkeys and elephants, why are they so upset with one another? Was there a time where they walked on their hind legs? Like, what is going on? 2,000 years from now, they might look at this and be like, what, what on earth? Now, we, for the most part, know what's going on in this, right? We have a very clear um, understanding. Uh, this is a pretty, pretty good depiction of, I, I think, the reality that we live in, right? We have an understanding of the symbolic nature of what is going on. So who wins? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> no one, right? Now, Jesus is doing something very similar here. Uh, This term, son of man, is not just a random phrase that Jesus thought sounded really nice when he said it, like the sound of it on his lips. Uh, But this is a term that finds its full meaning in the book of Daniel. Um, Again, as as in our discussion of the Messiah, as in our discussion of the overall mindset of the people, we don't have time to to delve into all of this discussion today. But we can can gain a couple of overarching uh, themes. So, uh, Daniel chapter 7... going to read just a little text, starting in verse 13. It says, In my vision at night, I looked, 
And there before me was one like a son of man. We've heard that before. Coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into His presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Man. Now, it's likely that by the time of Jesus that this phrase would have been associated with the Messiah. Now, when Jesus appropriates this phrase, He's, he's referring to Himself. He says, the Son of Man. When Jesus takes this phrase as his own, he's evoking the whole narrative of, of, of the story of Daniel. Do you guys remember any stories out of the book of Daniel? What's the book called? What creature did he have come to face to face with? Lions, yes. Daniel and the lions. And why was Daniel thrown to the lions then? I'm just going to look to you guys. Why was Daniel thrown into the lions then? He's prayed, right? He refused to bow down, right? He refused to, to compromise with pagan religion. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, much the same thing. They were thrown into a fiery furnace because they refused to follow the king's edicts that demanded that he be worshipped. And so the overall narrative of the book of Daniel says that, that the people of God, the true people of God, resist compromise with pagan religion. That they do not go after other gods, even at its most intense pressure, even if it causes them to be thrown into a fiery furnace or to a lion's den, that they will stand strong. And so Jesus, when he says, that the Son of Man, he's saying that, that I am the one, I'm the one who this, this is summed up in. I am the one who stands uh, when nobody else will stand, no matter the, the oppression, no matter the, the pressure that I face. Jesus is saying that the Son of Man is summed up in me. Now Daniel at his heart is demonstrating that Yahweh, Israel's God, will vindicate his people at last if they will cling to him and if they will not compromise. So when Jesus identifies himself with the one like a son of man, He's regarding himself as the one who, who sums up Israel's vocation to stand, to be the people of one God, not the people of, of whatever God might be in fashion at the time. And so we have two things that Jesus has said about himself, or that he has accepted about himself. Peter says that you are God's Messiah. Jesus doesn't correct him. He says, yeah, yeah, you're right. It, it, it is said, he, he calls himself the Son of Man, and Jesus uh, appropriates these things for him. And so these are two important terms that appear throughout the Gospels that, that are vital for us understanding what Jesus was doing. And much like our discussion of the Messiah, th this Son of Man guy seems like a pretty bad dude, right? Like his kingdom will go on forever and ever. He's not to be messed with. And this, again, fits in with the expectation that the Peter and the people of Jesus' day would have had for the Messiah. They're like, yeah, we're waiting for that guy. And if you take in the racial elements, if you read the book of Jonah, you know, there, there's this point where God is telling Jonah to go preach to the Assyrians. Well, the Assyrians were the Nazis. And Jonah doesn't want to preach to them because they might repent. And you know what Jonah wants to do? Jonah wants to watch the Assyrians burn. And this is the attitude of the people of Israel. They have been beaten down and oppressed, and they are waiting for their day in court when God will finally, finally vindicate them. And so this son of man language, this Messiah language, they'd have been like, yeah. Um, the son of man must suffer many, wait, Luke 9. The son of man must suffer many things. 
and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day raised to life. This was not what they were expecting the Son of Man to do. Jesus' shift is dramatic. It's almost abrupt. The Messiah, the Son of Man, full of power and authority, they are the means of God, uh, that God is going to fulfill His covenant with the people of Israel. But the way Jesus describes this happening are neither powerful nor glorious. The Son of Man must suffer many things. What's more, the enemies described in Daniel 7, the the passage that we ran from, are are foreign. They are are the people of an empire, uh, pagans, oppressors. But Jesus says that he's going to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. These are the people of Jerusalem. These are the people who represent the people of God. So what what is Jesus doing here? I would suggest that we have this Messiah language, we have this Son of Man language, and then there's a third uh, archetype, a third motif that is being used here. And and I believe it's found in Isaiah 40 uh, through 55. Now, this, I I would encourage you heavily, if you want to understand the nature of what Jesus was doing, read Isaiah 40 through 55. Take some time this week. That's, it's, it's such a vital passage for what Jesus saw himself doing. But the overall theme for this section of scripture is Yahweh is comforting and restoring his people after their exile. He's pouring his wrath upon the pagans who held them captive. And he is returning in person to Zion. Much like in Luke chapter 9, the people listened to such promises. They waited eagerly. Look in Isaiah chapter 51. Isaiah 51.3 says, The Lord will surely comfort Zion, and he will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the sound of singing. This, This poem is written to a people in exile. They are being beaten down. And this is the promise of Isaiah, is that the Lord will make will make the ruins like the Garden of Eden. And all the people of Israel would have been saying, yes, yes, Lord, do it. Please, come quickly. All the people would be in agreement. But then we have the means, the way this happens. If you turn over to Isaiah 53, starting in verse 4, Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. And so we have to kind of put all this together, right? Because because Jesus is saying that the Son of Man, the Messiah, is going to embody this, this, this person that Isaiah seems to be talking about. The people of Israel would have thought that this was them. Like they're the ones suffering. They're the ones being oppressed But Jesus is saying that he is the one who fully sums this up. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the anointed king who will will fight the enemies of Israel. He's the son of man who stands against the brunt of all all the pressure, of all compromise. He stands against that. And he is vindicating the people from their exile. And they're in exile because of their sins. He's defeating the evil that oppresses them. He's leading them. He's leading the return of Yahweh to Zion, and he's going to do that by acting as the faithful servant described in Isaiah 40 through 55. He's going to lay down his life. And 
and I hope you hear me, guys, because of what Christ has done, we have the benefits of everything that the Messiah was supposed to bring. We have returned from exile, Ephesians 2. Now in Christ Jesus, you you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Uh, Evil has been defeated. Uh, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? 1 Corinthians 15. Yahweh has returned to Zion. We are the temples of his Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Amen and amen. Jesus has done something very profound in our lives. He has acted as our Messiah. He has fought for us. And then, if you look in Luke 9, 23, he throws in one more wrinkle. Then he said to them, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. You see, Jesus, in taking up his cross, has brought the world out of exile. He has defeated evil. He has brought God's kingdom to this earth. And now he is inviting us, you and me, to take up our crosses. Now, this should be the defining characteristic of what it means to be a Christian. You know, I remember when Greg Hubbard preached a couple months ago, he he gave us some statistics that Christians were seen as, as judgmental or as people that were so out of touch with the world that they couldn't possibly be of any good. And it's so sad that that is the way that we are viewed when we should be viewed as people who lay down their lives, as people who come into the midst of the brokenness and the midst of the madness and are loving and self-giving. This should be the defining characteristics of Christians, the cross. Because this sums up Jesus' life, his mission. Yes, he was going to fight the powers of evil, and he did so by, by not fighting, by saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Instead of, instead of, you know, they were even tempting him. They were taunting him, saying, oh, if, if you really are who you say you are, then call down all your angels. And Jesus could have done it. If you read the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, there's a struggle. There's a battle. And ultimately, he comes to the point where he says, not my will, but yours be done. You know, sometimes I, we almost treat Jesus' life like it bears no significance. To anything, like it's just the part that comes before the real stuff, Right? Like, just hurry up and die. So we can get the atonement, we can get the the salvation, we can get the eternal life. Um, We we were taught that the only important thing was what Jesus did on the cross. But his whole life is, is demonstrated in the cross. The things that he does as he's walking throughout his life are demonstrated in what he does on the cross. I think... I think when we look at Jesus' life this way, it causes us to try, to try to assume the benefits of the cross. Things like salvation, things like eternal life. Without seeing the call that Jesus gives us is to embrace the process of the cross. Sacrificing, crucifying our flesh, laying down our lives for our neighbor. I think that this also causes us to miss the point that the cross of Christ was his victory, his glory. This is so profound in the Gospel of John that the hour of his glorification is the hour where he is being executed. Yes, it was agonizing. But it was the defeat of Satan, the accuser, the initiation of God's kingdom, his return to Zion. When we see the cross this way, it helps us to not not hear, take up your cross as a solemn call. Like we, we hear this and we're like, that sounds really terrible. It sounds really awful. This is not Christ inviting us to a joyless life, but the glorious invitation to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, we sometimes we feel the need to make Christ's message relevant for us. 
I think what we're saying is we don't really understand how he was relevant for the people that he was talking to in the first place. Because if we think Jesus was just teaching timeless truths, then we miss a lot of what he was saying. The cross should be our most defining characteristic. You and me in this room, it's what Jesus invites us into, and it is the most relevant teaching for us. Guys, if we as a community, if we as a church, would truly embrace Christ's call to lay down our lives our neighborhoods, our families, the, the, the inside, the, the thoughts that, that, that nobody knows about, those things would begin to transform. Because again, this is all wrapped up in a message of grace. The people of, of Israel understood grace because they understood that their Messiah, their Christ, their Son of Man was going to fight the battle for them. And we have that invitation. God has, has shown us that He is going to do it Certainly, this is about salvation for our souls, but it doesn't, it doesn't stop there. And, and we communicate that, that that's, that's kind of all, like, I guess Christ has saved me, so I got my ticket punched to heaven, and I'll see him on the other side. And what Christ is saying is that whoever wants to follow me must, must take up their crosses every day. It seems like to be something different there. Christ is saying that, look, I, I'm making all things new. And you know what this does? Is it, is it fills every moment of our lives with significance. It fills everything that we do with beauty and with truth. If we are embodying Christ's sacrifice to the world, then, then our job on Monday has, has infinite significance. If we are embodying Christ's sacrifice to the world, then our lives as parents or as brothers, as friends, has infinite significance. And guys, Jesus doesn't leave any doubt. It is our job as the people of God to live a crucified life. This gets at what Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 1 when he says, For me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And I guess you know, we look at this and we're like, oh gosh, that's, that really sounds terrible. It's almost like, okay Jesus, you, you win. I guess, I guess because you, you were crucified and you died, I'll, I'll, I'll live this joyless, sad life. But it's not at all what Jesus embodied. Like, look at his life. If, if his life is summed up by the cross, then, then all those things that he was doing, hanging out with people, um, enjoying the, the, the company and presence of people, um, sacrificing, serving, washing people's feet, all those things have significance. All those things seem to be uh, full of joy. And Jesus promised us that, that he was giving us life and life to the full. And just as his promise, just as his life was epitomized in going to the cross, so our lives will find their deepest meaning and freedom and joy in, in, in taking up our own crosses and following him. Now, the question for us, I, I, I think, is, is how, do we, how do we respond? Are we so concerned with our security, our own happiness, our own schedules, that our lives don't resemble Jesus's? Anything short of all that he has for us is, is, is false security, false happiness. It's chasing after something that ultimately won't fulfill you anyway. Jesus' life, his, his message, his death, his resurrection all demand that we understand that there are no compartments in the kingdom of God. See, we like to, we like to make Jesus out like he wasn't political. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. We, we, we use that as a cop-out. But if he's saying that he's the Messiah, it's a pretty political statement. He's saying, I'm the real king. Don't tell anybody yet. And so our lives are, are not to be compartmentalized into different 
aspects of them. He is speaking truth to an oppressive system of power from Jerusalem to, to Rome to the unseen evil forces in this world. Now, can Christians really expect to go with the, the flow of the American dream and just do you know, what everybody else seems to be doing? And then on Sunday morning, we come and worship a crucified Messiah who's saying, take up your cross, follow me. And then we walk out the doors and we look like everybody else. Can we, can we live lives of quiet devotion while the world is crying out in pain? I, I don't know. Luke 9 seems to be saying something different. Guys, there are children who live with post-traumatic stress every day because of the chaos of their environments. This is a Christian problem. There, there are senior citizens who live in isolation uh, with nobody to talk to. They've been forgotten and abandoned. This is a Christian problem. There are people who are depressed and need healing for their souls. This is a Christian problem. Children in certain locations don't receive the same level of education because uh, usually due to racial and economic factors. This is a Christian problem. And you know who God invited, enlisted to address the Christian problems? Christians. Guys, we cannot, we cannot punt on our responsibilities. Jesus' message is overarching. He's saying that I'm the Messiah, the Son of God, who lays down His life. He addresses every system of power in the world. And this is what He invites us into. If the Messiah is, is fighting evil, if the Messiah is leading people back into the presence of God, shouldn't we, when we act like the Messiah and taking up our crosses, do some of those things? Shouldn't that be the things that, that define us, that illustrate that we are who we say we are? And if you notice, Christ has answered the question with, of the Christian problems with Christians, and he's shown us how to do that on the cross. And my hope is that the reality of the cross infuses everything you do with eternal significance. Guys, this is not the call to some joyless life. This is the fullness of life. That we, we actually find our freedom, we actually find our joy and our happiness in, in ceasing to cease to seek our own gain, our own end, in, in having to have the respect of everybody else or to have everything that we want. When we give it up, when we lay our lives down, we find that God might actually be who he says he is. As Hebrews 12 says, for the joy set before Christ, he endured the cross. Guys, and that is the joy set before us. God's presence, his life is beckoning to us. There is a world that is hurting and is broken, and it is beckoning to us. And Jesus says that the way that you live life like I lived, the way that you do the things that I did, that you, you combat the forces of evil, that you stand against uh, the flow of everything uh, that, that may oppress people, is by the cross. And he's inviting us into that today. And, and guys, I'm confident that, that as we lay down our lives, and notice it says daily, like, you know, I wish, I wish I could just press a button and, and, and be in this world where... I was on autopilot, and I automatically uh, had this um, self-giving, sacrificial life. It hasn't worked out for me that, that way yet. Um, and if, if it has for anybody, I think they'd, they'd probably need the microphone right now, because they have more to say. But guys, take up your cross daily. The, the question, and this, this used to make me laugh. Before I was a Christian, there were these bracelets that said, WWJD. You guys remember, what would Jesus do? I think that's actually a pretty good question. But, but, I, but I think the question for us that we have to ask is, you know, 
what, how does my life reflect the sacrifice of, of Christ? How does my re- life reflect the cross? And, and where our lives do not line up with, with Jesus' life, with his fullness revealed, with his victory uh, demonstrated on the cross, that's where we come to God and say, God, help us. The Holy Spirit is transforming us. He's making us new. And he's doing that in the process of us laying down our lives, of us giving ourselves over to God and to our neighbor. Jesus crucified. It's, I, I don't think it's any coincidence that his arms are wide open on the cross. Is that he's inviting us all to follow him. He's inviting us into a bigger reality, into something much more profound. He's inviting us to a cross. And so may we, as a people, may we begin to love and, and change the, the realities that we stand in every day. Not, not by being the smartest, not by being the brightest, not by being the most eloquent speakers, not, not by doing all these things that we think, oh, if I could just do that, like then people, people would see that God is really cool. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus came and he died. And everybody thought, he lost. If you read the book of Acts, this is the scandal. They, they can't figure out, like, Paul, like you're preaching about a dude who was killed. End of story. Game over. But Jesus showed us what it means to love the world by his sacrifice, by his self-giving life. And then he invited us to do the same. Whoever would follow after me must take up his cross daily. May we be a people that would say yes and amen to that. Let's pray.